Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Android Central Podcast. It is Thursday, May 3rd, 2018. My name is Daniel Bader, and yes, I have returned from South Korea physically, but my heart is still... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> My heart is still in Seoul. Um, I love that country, and as much as I don't want to spend the podcast bragging about my my time there with the, the LG G7 ThinQ, uh, well, these two lovely gentlemen will have to give me some time to talk about <laughs> it. And those people are Andrew Martinick. Hello. How are you feeling? How's your voice? It's mostly back just in time to go get destroyed by allergies at Google I.O. So it's it's really good. This was a pretty bad cold. This was like almost a two-weeker, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, that sucks. Also, it comes around the time that you have your first and only nice day of weather in Seattle. So, um, ouch. You know, uh, that that must have been really hard for you. Uh, Jerry, Brand, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. have you ever been to Korea? No, but it everything I've seen and the people I've talked to, it seems like a rocking place, but I never got to go. It's very cool. You'll have to get there at some point, if only to drink the delicious uh, <laughs> whiskeys that are available on that side of the world. Uh, not just whiskey, but soju. This this yes. incredible. Um, you know, I've I've had sake before, and I've had you know I've tried soju, but I've only had the cheap stuff. Um, but we had some really delicious, more kind of expensive soju. And the, the really interesting thing about it, um, is, you know, obviously Korea is known for its heavy drinking culture. Everybody drinks after work. I saw more than a few businessmen stumbling home at like eight o'clock, um, on their way to the subway, which was something I haven't seen since spending time in London. Uh, it's a very a very similar work culture, I think. But soju is a little unlike whiskey, and I don't even know if it may be sake as well. There's a lot of different, there's varieties of um, alcohol percentages, mm. right? So you can have mm-hmm. a, so- a soju as low as 17% alcohol, which is a little bit more kind of easy drinking, sippable. And then there's the um, sojus all the way up to 50%, <laughs> which is like drinking ethanol, um, but it gets the job done. And um, I tried it all. I was very happy to try all varieties and brands. And let me tell you, it was uh, it was a good time. I can so, imagine. 50% <laughs> what? That's 200 proof? 100 proof? Uh, I don't know. How does that work, actually? I'm not sure what the proof, I think how the two, proof system works. I think works. 200 proof is 100% alcohol. So 100 oh, okay. proof Okay, so is, it's just doubled. Yes, but that's for for something that's not distilled. That's a lot of alcohol. Yeah, well, you felt it. I felt I had. It's so easy to drink it because it's very smooth. Yeah, you only it feel is. it after the fact. You feel the hangover, not necessarily getting drunk. Um. So anyway, um, that was that was fun, and uh, I listened to the podcast on the thirteen and a half hour flight on the way home. So you listened so, to it like <laughs> nine times over. I I didn't actually. I watched <laughs> the entire first season of Legion, which is eight episodes. And then I listened to the podcast, and then I was home. So it was great. Um, but in the in the in the last week or so since um, last Thursday, quite a few things have happened, Andrew. And um, you don't say. And and one of them is 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 going to reshape the U.S. mobile industry forever yeah. if it's approved. 
So we'll dive right into that potential Sprint T-Mobile merger because you know I'd love to talk about that. I want to talk a little bit about the LG G7. Thank you. I wish I wish that um, Alex was here, but it is 4:20 in the morning uh, where he is. So unfortunately, he's still asleep. And then we'll finish the podcast talking about the best party of the year, um, Google I.O. So we're going to keep it to three topics today, and I think we'll have plenty to talk about. So um, let's let's dive right in to the T-Mobile Sprint merger. This had been coming for years. We knew this. We heard inklings of it back in 2014. The deal fell through a number of times, and it actually came... It wasn't ever on the record before the official announcement, but there were there was a lot of kind of chatter um, up in you know in November December of 2017, but the mm-hmm. deal was scuppered because of uh, issues on Sprint side. But let's just talk a little bit about what the big deal is with this and what's going to change in the mobile industry. <sighs> You know, (laughs) that's, yeah, we're both, it's a huge deal because it's two of the four carriers are becoming one. And you know, the other two carriers are going to react to this news somehow. You know, I I see a a short period where they lower prices or offer more service to try to convince customers that theirs is still better. And then things kind of go back to normal. That that would be my guess. But still, the future, you know, we're just baby steps into uh, high bandwidth wireless communications here in the U.S. You've been to Korea. You know exactly what I mean. And the future, it's, it's important that it gets done the correct way. And this is going to really affect that a lot. So there's a lot of things to unpack here. First of all, T-Mobile is the only carrier in the last of the last five years to have added a substantial number of new customers and all of them, almost all of them came at the expense of AT&T and Verizon. So T-Mobile with its uncarrier project, with its very public and outspoken CEO, John Legere, uh, with its enormous investment in network upgrades to try to move ahead of of Verizon, not only in terms of speed, but in coverage and, um, and and many of its projects like T-Mobile Tuesdays, a lot of freebies, a lot of value adds, a lot of roaming, things like that, that have brought more than it's brought more than 40 million new customers to T-Mobile amazing, over the last four, uh, five years. So that, T-Mobile is now it's amazing, but they're stuck at this very they're stuck at number three. And they could continue adding customers year over year, and I'm sure they would, but there are there's a lot of ground to make up to catch up with AT&T, which is number two, and even more ground to make up to catch uh, Verizon. So this deal makes them solidly number three, just under AT&T for this third spot. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, Andrew, are saying that the combination of these two would be anti-competitive, that it would put the U.S. Um, mobile industry in a state of uh, of oligopoly, where there's really no need for companies to compete on price because all of the networks are about the same. All of the market share would be about a third and the networks may be better, but pricing, um, but, but 
pricing strength may be considerably worse. I think we've already started to see that even once T-Mobile pulled away from Sprint pretty considerably about two years ago, uh, that's where you started to see T-Mobile already start to take that on. I mean, uh, T-Mobile's ARPU, average revenue per user, has gone way, way up because they've consolidated plans and they've consolidated them all to higher, uh, higher end, you know, they go. They went to unlimited, quote unquote, plans, of course, and went to a very simplified system, and that meant everybody started paying more. So we already saw this move with T-Mobile once it built a large buffer ahead of Sprint, and it was clear that you know that wasn't going to converge again. They were just going to run away from Sprint as they did, and uh, you know they did legitimately. I don't think they did anything wrong to get ahead. They offered a better. A better product even as their prices went up but you can only imagine that that's going to continue to be the case once there is actually no pressure underneath them whatsoever uh sprint was pretty slow to react in you know upgrading its network and offering something better and lowering its prices down to be competitive uh and it was i think just too late to cut into t-mobile and i think that t-mobile regardless of this merger was just going to continue to grow but I don't think it was ever going to start lowering its prices again to be competitive. As you pointed out, T-Mobile's whole thing was consolidate plans and then offer a lot of value adds and improvements in the network to seem like a better overall value rather than necessarily being price competitive with T-Mobile and AT or with AT&T and Verizon. I, I, I get that. I, and I hear you know all the analysts are saying the same thing. I'm kind of not feeling it because if this hadn't happened, I think we'd still be down to three players in two years regardless. And then Verizon and AT&T would be fighting over Sprint Spectrum and it would be even worse. Sprint so you're, you're saying you're saying that Sprint, because it's 30 odd billion dollars in debt, would actually have to sell itself. So, SoftBank is basically bankrolling Sprint to keep them alive. And that's not going to go on forever when when every year it's more losses. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's actually a really good point. And both of these companies are not owned by U.S. parent companies. T-Mobile is owned by Deutsche Telekom, which is based in Germany and owns essentially all the like it, it, it runs a network in all almost every major European market. Um, and. Uh, with the with the brand T-Mobile, but um, when Americans think of T-Mobile, it's it's obviously a different a different brand yeah. or a different company. Um, and SoftBank is one of Japan's largest carriers, and I believe it does have service in other countries as well. SoftBank as is one of these kind of classic Japanese conglomerates where it does everything, uh, kind of like Sony is um, in, in Japan, where. You know, they're in the insurance business and the whatever home goods business and financing and venture capital. And it's bankrolled by this, um, you know, billionaire Masayoshi son. Uh, and so Sunson does all of these crazy things like runs its it runs his own investments, you know, parallel to SoftBanks and all that. So there's a lot of weight being thrown around there other than just SoftBank as a carrier. I can see a situation where, you know, let's say Laguerre or somebody talks about how this is going to create American jobs. 
you know, to the government overseers who get to approve this. And then Verizon, for example, turning around saying, hey, but the profits will all go to foreign companies. Mm-hmm. With this administration, that, that will mean something. So SoftBank, um, so Masayoshi's son is, a, is one of the most successful investors in the world, uh, period. I mean, he's the Warren yeah. Buffett of Japan. The guy invested $20 million in Alibaba in 2000 and turned it into a $60 billion payoff <laughs> in 2014 when Alibaba went public in China. Yeah, he, he personally runs a multi-billion dollar investment uh, for like 5G and VR and other emerging consumer technologies. Yeah, it's, it's, called, the, it's called the Vision Fund. And it's, yep. it's incredible. I mean, it's doing amazing things. And one of the, uh, one of the deals that Vision Fund made with uh, the current administration is that it agreed to invest more in U.S. companies. Um, and it's done so. It's invested in Uber. It's, um, it's invested in a number of smaller U.S. startups like Grab. Um, it has a stake in NVIDIA. It's got a whole bunch of very, very, you know, very different kinds of investments. But the ownership stake in, um, in, in Sprint is, is almost 100%. I think it's about 90% at this point. Yeah. So um, for all intents and purposes, Sprint is more foreign-owned than T-Mobile, right? Deutsche only has right. about 53% ownership stake. It's yeah, somewhere about half. Regardless, this does look to me, Andrew, like far more of a of an acquisition of Sprint by T-Mobile than a merger. Yeah, it's it's only a merger in that there's there are many synergies in the operations. Um, in, in that you know, uh, so Marcelo Claré, I believe, is how you pronounce the Sprint CEO's name. Uh, he's going to be the chief operating officer of the new company. And um, uh, Masayoshi San is going to install a few different board members, and, and he'll be like on the that. board which, itself, which is as important well. because of his uh, vision fund. It it's very dependent on the future of five G, and a lot of rumors say that's why the previous talks failed. And so, right. that from those perspectives, that's why it's a little bit mergery because there's actually you know a little bit of collaboration happening or i guess it's more of deutsche telecom offering some things uh to the sprint side of the deal so that the deal goes through but yes for for the consumer side of things it's it's gonna you know they're calling it the new t-mobile right now as a new company but it's it's really going to be the operations of t-mobile carrying on and integrating the sprint parts that they want uh, of course, in terms of spectrum and tower leases and all of um, not all of, let's be honest, many of the employees and things like that, yeah. that it's going to be an operation based over here in Bellevue, Washington, just how uh, T-Mobile is now. It, it very much is like Sprint is going to go away as a brand over time. They're going to keep some operations there in um, in Kansas City where they are. Uh, or I think they're just outside of Kansas City. Anyway, they're over there in Kansas. So that's going to be very secondary to all the primary stuff happening with T-Mobile uh, acquiring a lot of the assets. Yeah, I, I can't find the answer to this. No, nobody that I've spoken to knows. And 
I guess the people that know haven't got to my email yet. I believe Sprint is holding the their overseas U.S. network. Sprint provides uh, phone service for a lot of FPO, uh, you know, offshore Navy, Army installations hmm. that still have a U.S. phone number. That's Sprint's bandwidth providing that, and it's through the Pentagon, and I'm pretty sure that Sprint's still keeping those. But I and can't sure get a definite will. answer. And Sprint is a is a massive um, like backhaul provider as well to a lot of places. They're also in Overland Park, Kansas. I didn't even have to look that up, but that's where they are. So I, I just want to make a very small correction, Andrew. Marcelo yes. Clore will not be the COO. He'll actually just be on the board. Oh, and I'm sorry. It's I significant. thought he was doing CEO. It's significant because Mike Sievert, the current COO of T-Mobile, mm, yes, will actually correct. be yeah. COO of T-Mobile and, and the new T-Mobile. And the reason I'm I'm making that correction is just because there's almost nobody from the sprint, the current Sprint exec team that will maintain a position, at least at the top. Um, right. You know, Neville Ray, for well. instance, will will continue continue to run the network side of things. Um, Marcelo Clore is probably not going to have a day to day role other than being on the board, um, and that's why, to me, this does look as much like an acquisition uh, as as T Mobile's acquisition or as AT and T's T Mobile acquisition of T Mobile would have looked like back in 2011. Um, what I yeah, think is so interesting. The the mistake, sorry, is that he is, uh, Claret is going to be the COO of SoftBank and oversee the acquisition portion of Sprint moving to T-Mobile. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so that's that, that helps. I mean, and this transition is going to be like three to four years right, before right. the Sprint brand even disappears. So that, that's like his severance package. And oh, I'm sure it'll be I mean, very, honestly, very generous. That's a, that's a big move up from CEO of Sprint <laughs> to COO <laughs> of SoftBank. So honestly, that guy had a has a thankless job. Like being well, the CEO of Sprint must be incredibly frustrating most of the time. And we we spoke to him, and he is a very nice gentleman. And for all the hate he gets, I feel really bad for him. Yeah. At the same time, like it's not like Sprint is losing money. It's just they have a ton of debt, and they are not making much money to pay that debt off. And this is something that solves those problems together. T-Mobile will own a uh, slightly over 42% of the new company with, uh, or sorry, Deutsche Bank will own 42%. uh, SoftBank will own just over 27%. And the rest will be public. So um, yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's still John Legere's show. He's going to be the representative. If you saw a small clip of John and Marcelo on Cheddar a day after the announcement was made on Monday, it was very, very clear that John Legere does not have time for Marcelo. The guy yeah. snipped at him, told him, well, you you know, somebody asked Clare about something to do with the new company he said, you know, he he hedged a little bit, and then John Legere jumped in and said, "Well, maybe if you if you'd asked the new CEO of T-Mobile, you would have mm-hmm. gotten a better answer." Um, so, all that being said, a lot of the a lot of the uh, messaging around this deal, Jerry, is very much about protectionism. It's about making sure that T-Mobile, the new T-Mobile, is positioned to compete better with. Chinese companies in 5G. And it's also about positioning the new company as being one of many competitors in the US, as opposed to just 
one of three yeah. major companies. Uh, and what what that was that disclosure uh, said was that this deal makes sense because companies like Comcast and Charter are moving into the wireless business. But there's not a whole lot of truth to that right now, is there? No, because they're just. I hate to use the word MVNO because it doesn't quite fit here, but they're just using Verizon. Right. They so, being uh, Comcast and, and, Charter. and Charter, yes. And that's great. I mean, still, that's competition on some level. And I see what they're trying to say. And when I had to repeat what they said, it made my blood boil, and it still does today because it's a bunch of crap. Comcast right. and Charter are not competing with Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile and never will. They want to get the people that already use their service to give them forty more dollars a month and give them a phone. That's they're not competing with with customers they don't already have. Okay, so, so the second way that T Mobile is justifying this acquisition or this the merger is by saying that with five G and I and I want to use this as a jumping off point to talk about five G in the new company. They're saying that okay. Fine. Charter, Comcast, they're not really competitors. Like, they're not actually acknowledging that. But let's just say that they are, right? So that, Mm -hmm. yes, there are only three competitors right now. But if we're actually talking about the real competition out there, we are competing with the Time Warners, with the Comcast broadbands, with all of the companies providing wired fiber or cable internet to your homes because 5G is going to provide enough bandwidth low enough latency, and cheap enough costs to actually replace fixed wired broadband to the home for many Americans. And that is the value proposition that T-Mobile is putting forward here. If you're in the middle of Kansas and don't have access to fiber or high-speed cable, then you can sign up for a 5G plan from T-Mobile and get 100 gigabytes, uh, you know, two or three or whatever, two or three, five gigabits a second for a hundred bucks a month, the way that you would get it from your cable company. How realistic is that? Well, are we talking 2040 or 2019? Because right, exactly. <laughs> that That's not going to happen for years. It will happen, but we'll be old men older than I am. Speak now. for yourself, Jerry. <laughs> it's and, and, and that's because of sim- the simple fact that there is just no service there. There's so much empty land in parts of the United States. Uh, this stuff isn't magic. It has to beam from tower to tower, so equipment needs built. And then the equipment that is there, all of it needs upgraded. That doesn't happen fast. Let me quote Leger from the press release. This isn't a case of going from four to three wireless companies. There are now at least seven or eight big competitors in this converging market. Note the word converging. And in 5G, we'll go from zero to one. Only the new T-Mobile will have the capacity to deliver real nationwide 5G. So, Andrew, the way that T-Mobile is propositioning this, they have a ton of 600 megahertz spectrum. They have a lot of unused 2.5 gigahertz spectrum from Sprint. And they are now investing in millimeter wave, 28 gigahertz, that will um, eventually be used for much higher capacity, a shorter distance, uh, fixed and mobile 5G. Um, how are they looking compared to AT&T and Verizon in terms of positioning se- themselves as a 5G company? I, I think it's actually a pretty compelling argument uh, from their perspective 
on top of the fact that that's kind of the the only it is the argument that they have to make in order to justify the themselves so that you know that's kind of convenient but i it is pretty compelling if you take them at their word that this is what actually what their goal is um yeah it makes sense the the problem is it's not like there's going to be a complete overlap of where it makes sense to use new you know home i guess you just you just call it like home focused 5g connections and you know current style of broadband connections you know wires in the ground there there's not an overlap of that and obviously you have a, a complete overlap obviously you have this whole rural broadband play that you know kind of helps tug at the heartstrings a little bit but T-Mobile isn't going to be realistically doing this, like Jerry said. I mean, we're talking about at least 10 years out for this to be a widely available commercial thing. Right. I I I like this argument, though, because of the simple fact that without this merger, T-Mobile and Sprint cannot compete. They they are out of the picture completely. I don't think that's true. I think T-Mobile is in a very good position on its own. It's it's extremely um, well um, capitalized from its parent company. There was no question that the investments in LTE would translate into more um, inexpensive 5G transition, right? They're using soft cells. They're using massive MIMO. They're using the same technologies that will be implemented in the first generation of 5g already yeah they're already rolling out 600 and they planned to roll out 600 5 or 5g on 600 in the early days i think this is just allowing them first of all it gives them more spectrum than verizon and at&t period um and they have more mid-band spectrum in two and a half gigahertz but I don't know if that's a compelling – I mean, I, I'm sure you're right to some extent, but I don't know if T-Mobile saying, hey, we couldn't have done this without Sprint is true. I just don't think they I would think have done it the same way. it's more of an acceleration situation. They, uh, and, and let me correct myself. Yes, they could have, but now they can get started before they deploy all that millimeter wave spectrum that they've got too, right. which you know is expensive, crazy expensive – and requires all kinds of new equipment. But they can get started with the 600 and the 2.4 that they've got, which, you know, good for them for bucking the trend and using something that, yeah, it'll work, but it's not ideal. But, hey, that's what we got. Let's use it. I think so, my big thing is that it doesn't, like, yes, there's lots of there's lots of theoretical possibilities here, and it just got, it just got nicely accelerated by acquiring more assets from Sprint of, of all kinds, not just Spectrum, but towers and people and all these kind of things. All of these things that would take a really long time for T-Mobile to build up. Like that was, that's all nice. The The problem with their argument about being direct competitors with current broadband providers is that overlap problem that I was, that I was talking about. It's not going to make more sense in the large, densely populated areas that are already served by broadband and it's not going to make the most sense in extremely rural areas because those will be the last ones to get this new technology it 
it's not like they're directly head-to-head competitors. That That's the biggest thing for me. Even if they build out all of this infrastructure and they start offering this stuff, and yes, there's a, a much lower barrier to entry because there's no trenching into the ground and running, you know, cable down down the street to different buildings and especially individual homes. There's that lower barrier to entry. That's cool. But they're coming from zero where they're not offering that at all uh, versus a massive entrenched business. Right. Um, it, it's not like because of this acquisition, they're going to be able to accelerate it to the point where in two or three years, they're just going to start offering this. That's just that's just crazy. I just wanted to ask, you know, what are the chances like, so in an, in a, in New York city, for instance, it's well known that you can have one provider on one street and another provider on another street, but they don't compete with one another. And, you know, I'm talking yep. about time Warner versus Fios. Um, and, and again, like Verizon, it has to be said, and AT&T are both broadband providers in parts of the U S so Uverse, I believe is a, is an AT&T broadband product. Yeah. Um, Fios is a is a fi- fiber product for the bigger a lot thing of the, for both of them is that they're both massive DSL providers, right? Which is not fast, but it's it it picks up the slack in areas that aren't covered by fiber or cable. Yeah. So you know you're talking T-Mobile is basically promising that it is going to enter the fixed wireless um, market to compete not only with AT and T and Verizon in wireless but wired as well. How realistic is it for T-Mobile, maybe once 5G is a bit more mature, to go into markets like New York City and San Francisco, where it's extremely dense, and be like, yo, guys, we're now going to be the third competitor. We're going to lower prices, blah, blah, blah. Hey, it worked for mobile. Come get your free stuff on Tuesdays. Uh, you can stream Netflix for free. Yeah, our prices are 10 bucks cheaper. Switch to us. And people flock to them on mobile. Well, I have a, I have a very sad story version of this because I lived in a massive market for Clearwire uh when it was before it was acquired by Sprint and and there thereafter they they tried this really hard and of course the the base problem was that it was WiMAX and there were lots of issues with that technology but they said hey you don't have to deal with the cable company we will sell you this box that's a wireless repeater of of WiMAX and you put it in your window and it's much cheaper and like Jerry was saying it's the the incentives are there it's like you know there's a month to month contract and it's a third of the price of Comcast or whatever it completely failed because there's so much variety you can't just hand out these boxes to people and say oh yeah this whole city is covered because it's you know, depending on the way that your apartment faces, you have zero coverage. And yes, there are lots of, you know, dramatic improvements just in LTE and using small cells around the city and things like that, that have improved that situation. But you still have a major issue of, you can't just have quote unquote coverage in a city and say that you can provide the same level of service with wireless as you can with wired yeah, right at, now. Right. And, and using WiMAX as an example is actually great because WiMAX, everybody thought that municipalities would jump on board and every traffic light and every parking meter would also be a repeater and everybody would have a, a reasonably fast network. 
in theory, on paper, it was wonderful. But, you know, Seattle didn't jump on board. So you've got repeaters scattered around and half of them can't talk to each other. So the coverage sucks. Yeah, I think that there there are massive hurdles, even though you're not digging you know, a trench or you're not, you know, in Seattle, we have a system of dark fiber and you, uh, lots of different operators can latch onto it. And it's a great situation. You know, you, even if you don't have to do that, there are huge issues with trying to deploy a wireless network in a dense area. And there are other huge issues with trying to, and, you know, really cost effectiveness issues of deploying that same type of network in a rural area where it's only a handful of people for, per square mile. So it's, mm-hmm. I, I just, I mean, I, I, I agree with you in theory. I just want to say 5G was built, the spec was designed to avoid the same pitfalls of WiMAX, right? Like right. that, it was actually designed with absolutely the, the issues that WiMAX and other fixed wireless solutions failed at. And they built it with, all of those problems in mind. That's why it works from 600 all the way to gigabit or gigahertz, right? Um, I agree with you. It's harder than it sounds and it won't happen overnight. But I just think the market itself is what's going to, I think that's the question, right? Will will the market support such a, um, I mean, will it support this kind of business model? I think it will. Yeah, only because, and this is all based on the past, you know, the, the, this is different than LTE was. Look at T-Mobile. They got people to switch to their network, even though it wasn't as good as the company they switched from. They, yeah. they put good coverage in key areas. They made sure everybody knew about how great their coverage was in certain areas. They made sure everybody knew that, hey, we're a friendly network, and you know, we still want your money, but we give back, and this is what we give you. And they made people want to use their service. And I see no reason why they can't do the same for wired broadband. Right. I, I think that is a good point. And people definitely, as we've shown, will take a lower level of service if the the price and the value proposition is right. The issue with that is that if you're talking about that's different obviously than from what t-mobile is saying like that is saying that's kind of the t-mobile of old situation Mm -hmm. and that is exactly the position that t-mobile is trying to leave currently by acquiring you know merging with sprint like that doesn't make them a direct competitor with comcast no no that's what that's what's funny about it saying oh yeah well it's it's half the price but it's more than half as good is not making a direct competitor with time warner (laughs) to be successful it's still going to require john laguerre's showmanship period you know or or we wait a few years i think we'll be waiting and some of their goals are going to be forgotten and some of them, they're going to be years from now, and we're going to see a lot of the same for the next few years. Okay, so the, the next question then is, this is all theoretical until two things happen. One, the FCC looks into and approves the deal. And two, the Justice Department looks into right. and approves the deal. Uh, we know the climate is more amenable to these kinds of mergers right now, given um, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai's position on on mergers uh, and you know 
ending net neutrality so that it, it gives these providers a little bit more leeway in the kinds of services that they can offer uh, consumers, zero rating and all those types of things. In, as in addition to f- slow and fast lanes, which we haven't really talked about, but that's another potential business that uh, companies are going to try to get into. Um, Jerry, what are the chances that this is going to get approved? I think the chances are very good. I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, the people that make the actual decisions haven't said anything, of course, but I, I can't imagine there hasn't been some backroom talk between one group's lawyers and another group's lawyers over drinks somewhere and that everybody already thinks this is going to be approved. All right. So yeah, I agree. I, I don't see how this gets held up. It seems pretty sound. That's how Washington works. I mean, you know, I'm not any insider, but I read the Washington Post every day, and that's all they talk about is, you know, this person had this to say, and then it comes true. Lawmakers are are people, and they make quick friendships that are profitable, and sometimes they don't. I think this little friendship has already been made. What happens now? How long do we wait? Because T-Mobile wants this deal to be approved within a year. They're they're talking about Q2 or mid-2019. Yeah, they're ready when, to go. Yeah. Um, is that realistic based on previous mergers and acquisitions? Well, sure. The the paperwork the paperwork could be done, but that all that does is kick off years of transition. Uh, in the end, we're still talking about tens of millions of Sprint customers. Yeah, that are going to have to get new devices, move to a new billing system. Uh, lots and lots and lots of people at Sprint and T-Mobile are going to lose their jobs as they combine the two companies. There are lots of things that have to happen. I mean, it's going to be three, four, five year process. I think I said somewhere where we wrote that after the deal's done, it's going to take six months to figure out where to put the new desk for the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> That's just how it works. Uh, so the the other thing the other thing to to talk about is right now um, AT and T's acquisition of Time Warner is in the courts. Um, the Justice Department sued to try to stop that merger. A lot of people believe that it, it's not necessarily because it's a bad merger or that the FCC um, wouldn't approve it, which they have. I mean that you know this 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 FCC has already said sure. Um, yeah. But is there any chance that the FCC could approve the merger of T-Mobile and Sprint and the Justice Department say, no, we don't want these kinds of anti-competitive practices taking place? Sure. I mean, our our FCC, and and I know people out there disagree with me, they do not care about the people. They are corporate raider types, ex-lawyers, and this is the kind of thing they love. They will just approve this without batting an eye. The Justice Department, I hope, will actually look into it and consider how it affects the American people. Okay, so I think right now we're in a bit of a stasis period. We're going to have to wait and see until something happens. You know, this will go on for months. The lawyers are now getting involved. Let's let's put a fork in it. Let's uh, talk well, about it. I want to say one thing real quick. Go for uh, it. The, 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 the one shining light here is... We do not want a future that is AT&T's U-verse, Verizon Fios, and Comcast, uh, those three being the, the competitors to wire our country for broadband wired networks. This at least will provide a fourth for a little while. 
And that part, you know, that's kind of, I think, what maybe John Laguerre is alluding to, that, you know, this is better than a future without us, and I have to agree with that. I do not want Verizon and AT&T deciding policy. We're going to take our first break, and we're going to talk about our friends at Thrifter. Thrifter is the place to go for all of the best deals, tech and otherwise. You go to Thrifter, you see things like controllers for your Nintendo Switch. You see things like discounts on an Instant Pot that I still have to buy because everybody tells me it's amazing. (laughs) And discounts on things like a Roku streaming stick and a one-month free uh, access to DirecTV Now, which is owned by AT&T. Guys, we do this every week. We go around the, the horn and we talk about a deal that we like. Andrew, I haven't heard from you in a few minutes. What's your, uh, what's your pick for, for this week? Uh, speaking of spending all of your home bandwidth on things, uh, you should, instead of just doing an online backup of things in your computer, have a local backup too. They have uh, a deal here for a Seagate two terabyte spinning drive for $68, which is just absolutely insane. Pop one of these in an external enclosure and just back up everything from your computers locally. Also make a copy, you know, online. But if you have terabytes of data, you know, that's unless you have an insane upload at home, you're not going to be able to back that up to the cloud in any reasonable amount of time. So have a local backup as well. It doesn't matter that it's a spinning drive or it's not that fast, anything like that. This is going to be something that sits in a closet most of the time and you, you know, do a little rotation of backups, but you know, don't let just the drive and your on your laptop or your desktop be the only place that your data is. Um, just to be clear as well, this is a an Iron Wolf branded Seagate, which is actually optimized for NAS. Yep. yep. Hardware, so it's even better. Sixty eight dollars. This is yeah. for, insane. for two terabytes. So you know. Yeah. Um, Jerry, what's your pick for the week? Uh. There is a Netgear Nighthawk X6 wireless router. It's only 150 bucks. Uh, I like my and mesh. It, it looks like you're gonna. It's gonna come kill you. <laughs> I, I like my my mesh Wi-Fi, but that's because my PlayStation and my computer are hardwired. I don't depend on Wi-Fi for gaming or you know streaming. Uh, a lot of people are saying that mesh systems just aren't quite fast enough. If that's you. This this Netgear is going to be fast enough. It's going to beam wonderful, beautiful, radioactive Wi-Fi through you, and it's going to blast everything in your house. They that are sounds beasts. really terrible, actually. Like, no, dangerous. It's, a, it's great. It's great because it's not only beaming through you, it's hitting your PlayStation or your Xbox, and you're not going to have latency. And when you're playing Call of Duty, you're not going to freeze and all of a sudden show up dead. You're going to be the guy killing the people that are frozen. So what you're saying is that Wi-Fi is not dangerous for your health. No, of course not. It's good for you. It makes you grow strong like greens. <laughs> so what you're saying is Wi-Fi is spinach. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, you heard it here first, guys. But 150 bucks is a good deal. No, that's that's a really good deal. If you're not, if you don't need a mesh system, I think the Nighthawk is the one to get. Yep. Um, let's, let's continue this trend of gaming slash, you know, home optimization, um, tech. My pick this week is a 32 inch curved HDR 
enabled gaming monitor from Samsung. I saw uh, that. It's 500 bucks, which is a lot of money to spend on a monitor, but it is real nice. It's a QHD resolution, which if you're used to phones, this doesn't seem like a hu- like a very high pixel density, but you're really not going to find a higher resolution on a 32-inch display, not unless you go to 4K. And this is not optimized for resolution. It's optimized for refresh rate and, and response time. This has a 144 hertz refresh rate, which is absurd. Yep. That means that you can get 144 frames per second without having without seeing any tearing, nothing like that. Or, you know, there's basically, it'll be smooth. Plus one millisecond response time. So along with your Nighthawk router, this is going to give you a really great gaming experience. It actually kind of looks nice too. It's got a really nice stand that, it's like a triangle. It's very modern. Um, the screen curves a little bit. And uh, it supports FreeSync too, um, which is, I want to say, is that, it's AMD's solution, right? Uh, it's no. one of their solutions, yes. FreeSync was AMD, I'm pretty sure. What was what was NVIDIA's version of that? Oh, dear God, I use it too. Oh, it's G-Sync, right. So it's G-Sync, like FreeSync yes. and G-Sync. FreeSync 2 is from last year. It's their low latency gaming refresh for HDR. Speaking of which, Andrew, just as a complete aside, remember those Mm -hmm. BFG monitors that were announced at CES? BFGDs. BFGDs? I'm waiting for them. I know. Where are they? It's not like NVIDIA's Um, ever done this before where they announce something at CES and then don't (laughs) ship it NVIDIA spot with the... Um, yeah, they're in the same dark room with no windows as the NVIDIA spot, <laughs> I, just glowing I, green. I literally went to NVIDIA's website where you can buy their own branded things that they make like four times every week with my credit card out because I want one, I will buy one. But now I've already spent the money. Yeah, the well, interesting thing there is that it was from multiple manufacturers too. It's from HP yeah. and Acer and Lenovo or something yeah, like that. I, yeah, I just figured that they would have theirs first before the other companies got them made. Well, I figured but, any of them would would happen eventually. But I, I mean, they were coy about it at CES. But that's par for the course. You know, yeah, even even Acer, who has always been quick or to turn out, you know, parts like that. Not not a word. No idea. Anyway, buy this monitor. Support Thrifter. Support also, us. Support those us, things are really. like fifty-five inches, so it's yeah, no, not no, really don't a, buy don't buy the thing really that you can't buy. Buy the Samsung Curve Monitor. Um, right. Go to thrifter.com and sign up for their daily newsletter. And as always, we thank them for their sponsorship. Um, so we're going to talk next about the LG G7 ThinQ. And I, it's as as good as this phone is, I don't want to spend that much time on it because I really want to focus on IO here. Um, but I just want to say that the response to this phone from the cynical press has been like unprecedented in <laughs> its snark. Like there isn't a single person other than me who seems excited for this phone. I don't know. Have you guys gotten that impression? Yes. There, people are more concerned about making fun of the name than telling me about the phone. Yeah. So I went to Korea, um, and disclosure, LG paid for the trip. So, the, you know, it may be, you may think that I, think you, that I, um, you know, am Stop. biased or that I don't, you know, that I'm, that I'm letting LG off the hook. 
Uh, that is not the case, and I want to give you a few reasons. Um, this is LG's best phone ever. That is a given. It's 2018. It should be better than the 2017 version. But LG has a new outlook on fundamentals. Uh, they call it the ABCD um, vision. A, uh, ABCD, AI for A, B for battery, C for camera, and D for display. It's very, very simple. And it's effective because the G7 is a very good phone. I completely agree that it's not going to make a dent. But my supposition is that it's not supposed to make a dent. In that LG has is 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 a huge company that also happens to make phones. It's not a phone company. It's not uh, mm. it's not Apple. It's you know Samsung's not necessarily a phone company either. But at least that those phones make money. You're, so you're saying that LG is taking the the Sony style route that hey we make really great stuff. Some of the things we make are phones. So Sony is not as effective at this. Sony doesn't actually have a relationship with US carriers. It's it's a pretty like like I I think Sony's Xperia phones are hard to understand because um unlike LG's intention with uh the Xper- with, with um the G7 ThinQ, the, the ThinQ brand is meant to complement air conditioners. It's it's meant to complement mm-hmm. Refrigerator yeah, was announced and, before this phone. Totally right. Um, yep. I don't know if it'll do that. It's not necessarily going to make me think of the word "thank you" every time I pick up an LG G7. But the company's like, what else do we have to lose? We haven't had success with modular phones, curved phones, three D phones. We have to make a decent phone because every prestigious tech company has to have a phone in its portfolio. We have a bunch of really good products that our other subsidiaries make. Let's make the best phone we can. Obviously, try to sell them, but make that make it a halo for the rest of the parts of our company that make a ton of money, which is televisions and appliances. And if you look at it from that perspective, it does make quite a lot of sense. Um, I don't. I just don't know how likely somebody is when they buy a phone once every two years to then go, oh, remember that G7 I had in 2018? I should buy that. I should buy an LG branded refrigerator because um, it also works with my LG phone. Like, Mm. I don't know, but that's, I think, the goal here. I I like what you said where where you wrote about that, their their ambitions. It says, it may not work, but what does LG have to lose? And I think that that pretty much nails it. LG is very successful in some areas and they can afford to try this. Yeah, and and it's it's the company just came off its most profitable quarter ever despite yeah. losing 130 million dollars in its mobile division. So and what was really interesting is that um LG doesn't even have a significant market share in its home country of Korea. It's growing, but it only has a 12.5% market share. Some say it's 17%, but it depends on the analyst, uh, the analysis that you look at. But it's between 125 and 17%, which is about the same as Apple, and it's way below Samsung. So even in Korea, where it's doing be- its best, because the company can sell its phones at full price, um, the, the, the situation is just as dire. So I don't know. Andrew... 
I know you haven't seen the phone, but given the beautiful photos that I took and the amazing mm-hmm. video that Alex did. It's like I was there. It's like you were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What's your impression so far? I, I think that that's a very interesting way to look at it in that it, LG wasn't trying to do anything particularly extreme or stand out with the G7. It, it was just like, hey, we're going to just make a solid phone. And that's why it doesn't seem all that exciting over the, the G6 and the V30. And it really does feel like kind of a, I mean, from my perspective, it looks like a G6 V30 mashup with, you know, this year's specs kind of situation. Um, that's, I guess, kind of the problem is it's just a little, like, what, what's the, you know, what's the hook? Right, right, right. What's the hook? So there, there isn't one. It's there a, isn't a, you one. Know, it's a thing that exists. So here's here's what's interesting. Despite where's the hook, um, every carrier but AT and T is going to stock the phone. T Mobile, Sprint, Verizon, U.S. Cellular. They've all committed to to selling uh, the the G7. AT and T says it's not going to be selling it because it has another exclusive phone launching later in the year. I suspect that they're not talking about the V40, but they're talking about something else. Um, and I, I don't know exactly what it is. I have my suspicions, but hmm. r- regardless, it's not the, the, the G7. But Andrew, you, you raise a really good point. This is the V30 and the G6. It is almost identical to that sort of hybrid. And here's, here's why. Um, it's using the same 16 megapixel sensor that was found in the main sensor on the V30. It's now in both cameras. So it's the Sony IMX351. It's That's a decent sensor, right? Um, but it's been improved because it's running on the Snapdragon 845 ISP. It's, um, it's a fast lens in the main camera with OIS f1.6. There's very little distortion in the secondary camera now because the field of view is 107 degrees down from 125 in the G6. So it's less of like a barrel effect, less fisheye, but it's, I think, more pleasing to the eye. Um, The camera software is identical. It's better, but it's identical to to the V30. So you have the same really great manual controls that you found in the V30, uh, same like Cine, whatever, CineVision stuff, but uh, same <laughs> focus speaking. Um, you have um, am- amazing haptics. That was something I was worried about because the the G6 didn't have great haptics. The V30 did. This has the same haptics inside of it. And it's uh, it's got a, a ridiculously good speaker. Like they call it boombox, which is dumb, but... It, the speaker is really good. It uses the entire body of the phone to... Um, that was really smart when I heard about that. Yeah, it's it's fun to, to to listen to it because when you pick up the phone and you like play a song, the whole thing vibrates. But it's not like Sony where the the haptic is vibrating. Like it's not... It doesn't feel fake or... or um, with Sony, is it like... It's very localized because it's just that haptic... Um, that like haptic motor moving in that one position, whereas this is spread out. So it feels more natural. It does give it a little bit of base. It's good. Um, and then finally, the screen. The screen is really interesting. It's not MLCD plus, Jerry, um, which, oh, is something, which is something that we thought it was, but I, I got yeah. confirmation. It's just an uh, RGBW layout. So it, there's red, green, blue, 
um, and white, and that's how it gets to a thousand nits. But the, it, it's a very high quality LCD. It's the best LCD that LG's ever made, um, and it can, you can manually set the brightness to a thousand nits for three minutes. And once that three minutes three minute period is over, then it resets. That's a nice touch. That's a really nice. Touch. I would prefer if it did that automatically, like Samsung does. Uh, right. I, I kind I'm of just like wondering why, said though. It. I heard that last week, and I, I just wondered why. Why do you think it's better to just do it automatically? Because, well, at least the way that Samsung does it is, I don't notice it coming on because it's a situation where you pull the phone out of your pocket in bright sunlight and it's just cranked because you already have it in automatic brightness. It goes up to that super overdrive mode where it kind of lowers the contrast and gives you the brightness you need. And then that's it. It's just available when you need it. I don't have to pull down the notification shade and hit a button. It's kind of, it it reminds me of the, what was it? The idle four with the boom key. Yeah. Where it's like, God, well, instead of giving me a button to do the thing that's awesome, why doesn't it just do the thing that's awesome all the time? It's like it's like if you had to toggle a switch to turn on that full phone speaker boombox mode rather than just having it be part of the volume control. I'm the exact opposite. This this phone, this is mine. It does what I tell it to do. I don't want it to do stuff automatically. Well, you should be able to turn off automatic brightness and then it won't do it. Well, you know, I guess the ideal thing would be automatic or timed. You select. But until we have that, I would choose. I can put the setting for the timeout. I like that. But I can't say Samsung does it poorly. I just would rather have control over it. It's a nitpicky thing. The question is, Daniel, how is the display? Because LG has not hit it out of the park with mobile displays lately. Well, yeah, I mean, the it's not an OLED display, and that's something that um, makes sense if you see the VNG series converging. They The features themselves are becoming more similar, but one thing LG's committing to is that its V-series will have OLED and its G-series will have LCD. Um, if you look at it like that, it kind of makes sense. This is a good LCD display. It uh, The darks are obviously not going to be quite as good as an OLED, but the... What's interesting here, it's uh, 99% DCI-P3 compliant. Um, it, it's, I think, I forget exactly what it is, but it's like over 120, I think it's 128% Adobe RGB um, or sRGB. I can't remember which one, but it's a, it's a decent LCD panel. Um, it does HDR, which is, um, the G6 was one of the first phones to do mm-hmm. HDR, so this also does HDR and Dolby Vision, which is great. Um, the The reason that they don't do the thousand nits toggle automatically is because the automatic brightness can go up to seven hundred nits, which is itself good enough for most outdoor That's good. Um, most outdoor scenes. So it's only when you really, really need that extra boost. But we did it; like we we made the comparison. In a, on a sunny day in in Korea, and it um, you could definitely see the screen properly without toggling the the thousand nits boost mode. But it it was just nicer to have. Like it's far easier for me to capture photos, for instance. But normally, I don't think anybody's going to need it. I think it's just more like a you're just showing off. Yeah, right. <laughs> that that's just the I hate to cut 
uh, keep harping on this, but I'm going to because it's stupid. It the the thing about a Samsung phone's display, you know, the Galaxy S9 Plus, Galaxy Note 8, whatever, Galaxy S8, Galaxy S7, fantastic displays. You don't have to think about them. They always look good, no matter what. You set it on auto brightness. You just use the phone. It looks fantastic. Unless it crushes the blacks and bans all the blues and has no, no, issues no, no. like the normal S9 people, Plus does. Normal people don't give a damn about that. They care about, they take the phone out of their pocket, whether it's a dark room, it gets really dim, or direct sunlight, and it's 100 degrees out and no clouds, it looks great. Yeah, I hear you. Why why do you have to put a toggle in there? It's just, like, you're getting beat in simplicity by Samsung that you're doing something wrong. But what if 90% of the time you don't need it that bright? But, so it doesn't matter. You have to stare at that toggle in the quick to- in the quick settings for turning on your your super brightness mode. Anyway, I I understand the, I understand <sighs> your hang up, and and I want to actually <laughs> take that a little bit further because when you you say oh you're, if you're getting beaten um, for simplicity by Samsung, uh, that is a good way to transition into a couple of the software things. So <laughs> <laughs> Samsung is not known for its subtlety in software. LG is, is, is also not known uh, for its subtlety, but the software here is is a lot better. It's a lot smoother. And yeah. it's just got less features to bog you down. At the same That's time, good. there's a notch on the display that you can manually disable or you can tweak to give it rounded corners. And there are background uh, colors to the notch area, which just I like think- Just like they used to do with the, the with navigation the bar, right? Yeah, tr- it's, trying to make us like the notch is what they're trying to do. But they're not even calling it a notch. They're calling it the new second screen. Har- har- you know, um, hmm. They hired back John to the McGear V10. to give them that, that freaking moniker. Oh, it's so because bad. Because it's a notch. It's a notch. It's, it's they saw the iPhone X and said, hey, we can do that and did it. Come on, own it. I would I would think that that's great. If the iPhone X did a great thing with it. If if you want tiny bezels, why beat around the bush? We saw it, we loved it, we did it. Look, we did mm-hmm. it better. That's how that's how you approach that, in my opinion. You don't try to justify it. And the nice thing is that when it gets when it gets Android P in uh, May 2019, <sighs> it's going to be ready for it. I don't know. You know, I, I I've come to grips. I'm going to have to deal with a notch in the next phone I get. And I'm probably going to have to deal with a phone I can barely use unless that key two is a real thing. Please be a real thing. At least they're trying. I'll give them that. They're they're trying to accommodate people who can't deal with a notch for one reason or another. Uh, when they black that out at the top, is it actually dead or is it still active? Well, it's a so it's an LCD panel, so it is still active. But the backlight. No, I mean is, the the digitizer. Is it? Oh yeah, if, no, it's still active. I think. see that kind of because it's a status bar. Yeah, that kind of stinks. Just like you can swipe down from the status bar now to bring down the notification shade. Yeah, so all they're doing is changing the color, and they're trying to tell us that you can get rid of it. Well, that's not getting rid of it, LG. That's changing the color. Okay, so there is a he- there's a headphone jack on the bottom, which is great. There's Yay. a quad DAC inside of it, which is awesome. The speaker is really loud. Um, everything about it is good. The... I, I'm a little bit concerned with the quality of the low of the low light camera. It's Uh-oh. all it's got a super bright mode, which uses pixel binning to 
get uh, to make four megapixel photos out of the 16 megapixel sensor. It just brightens the photo, but it doesn't actually get rid of grain because the pixels themselves are still one nanometer or sorry, one one micron. Um, There are inherent limitations to that. It's not nearly as good in low light as the P10 or sorry, P20 Pro. Uh, That was something that I, I saw immediately in testing. But I think a lot of people, I mean, Mr. Mobile loves the fact that the wide angle camera is there on an LG phone. Yeah. You can't really get that with other things. So I, uh, with other phones. So I really do think that there's, um, there's a, th- there is a value proposition here that goes beyond just the fundamentals, but at the same time, nobody's expecting this to sell in numbers. And, and Andrew coming two months later, two and a half months out after the Galaxy S9, I mean, this is debuting on June 1st. That's just, it's basically dead in the water, right? And do we know what the pricing is going to be like? No, and that's another thing. LG always does this. They leave status. it for the carriers to announce, and because they don't sell unlocked versions of their phones, you don't get an idea of the MSRP. I think it'll be 750 That's probably my guess, um, which is the same just a bit more than the Galaxy S9, but I can't see it being six ninety nine. Right. It's, it's there's too much new stuff here. There's too many expensive components not to increase the price to seven fifty. And and at that price, to answer your question, yeah, it, it really does seem like it's dead. That that's so unfortunate. But you're you're late compared to the you know compared to the Galaxy S9. You don't do anything particularly better other than you could talk about the speaker experience and the choice of wide angle camera right uh, especially compared to the s9 not having a secondary camera but still disappointed by that it, but there's just right there's nothing there to draw people away other than what will hopefully be you know some aggressive carrier pushing of it you know with some some buy one get one deals or whatever but now we're long enough in the Galaxy S9's life that we're starting to see discounts on the S9 and S9 Plus. And we also have new options for higher storage models of the S9 and S9 Plus with some some freebie giveaways and things like that because we're getting far enough along in its lifespan. So that's going to make it even harder because LG's not going to want to drop the price right out of the gate. So the other thing too is that there's an there's a st- the base model of the G7 is 66 uh, 4 gigs of RAM 64 gigs of storage with micro like SD. Did I say sorry G7? Like sorry, I'm getting my acronyms confused. <laughs> the G7 is like the S9, yes. There's a plus version which has 6 gigs of RAM and 128 gigs of storage which is unlike the S9 Plus, which still only has 64 gigs in its base um, model, but we don't know how much more the G7 Plus will cost and whether or not that'll be available at any carriers either. So yeah, there's still a lot to to look at and I'm excited to try a final version of the phone just to see if the camera holds up in day-to-day use. But at the end of the day, it probably isn't going to be my daily driver unless that camera is really good. And Andrew, you are also like, you're talking about phones like the OnePlus 6, which that's going to be increasing in price inevitably. That camera has to be really, really good, but yeah. it's still going to be 
way cheaper than the G7. Yeah, exactly. And here, if we look back at the last year, we were saying a lot of these same things about the G6. We said a lot of the same things about the HTC U11, where, yeah, it's a solid phone. It has lots of, it has all the right components. It doesn't do anything wrong. You know, it's not shaped like a triangle or anything (laughs) weird. You know, they're not trying to do anything outside of the box. They just made a solid phone and nobody bought it. Either one of those phones, Mm -hmm. because it, it didn't have anything, one thing that was particularly compelling about it. And it looks like it's just a, a full-on repeat with the G7. They, they made a refresh. It is modern. It's just not necessarily exciting. There, there's one thing here that does excite me, and that's uh, that's the camera. Even if the camera isn't great right now, the camera will get better because it depends on machine learning. And the camera on your S9 Plus will never get any better. It may be great right now, but six months from now, the camera on the G7 could be stupendously better. You know, we expect the Pixel 3 to have the best camera in the world again when it launches next year. Uh, the, the camera on this can be that good. I really hope it doesn't launch next year. Just saying. Oh, okay. Well, I guess, yeah, this year. But uh, that's, I, I like that. I want to see more companies move towards that. You know, we've, Google's doing it. Huawei's doing it. The, the technology is available. And it's not that difficult to implement. And companies like, you know, LG and Samsung already use AI in other areas. Why not dump it into your camera? Absolutely. So we'll see. We'll we'll be able to test out the G7. Uh, Alex has one right now, but it's a pre-production unit. We're not really supposed to. I mean, we can review the pre-production unit. LG's LG does this every year where they're like, yeah, you can review it. And we want to because we want to get the review out there first. But at the same time, we also want to give you, the reader and the listener, the best um, yeah. recommendation. And we can't we can't really evaluate uh, pre-production. Well, and phone. let's be honest, LG's pre-production phones tend to be weird. They're bad, and they're not the same skew. They're not the same hardware that you'd get in. This is a Korean version that he has. So anyway, we're not going to review that phone. We're going to wait until the U.S. versions hit our labs, and then we will review that one. So lots more to talk about uh, with the G7 in the coming weeks. Um, But I wanted to take another quick break. And and actually, Jerry, I I have a question for you. Yes, anything. Do Do you like poo? Uh... Well, I mean, I like it when it leaves. Uh, you, you know, I don't. But here's but, the thing: I don't think you want this poo to leave. I think you want this poo to stay with you as long as possible. No, see, that happened once, and I ended up having to go to the doctor, <laughs> and I don't want to do that again. Because we're we're not actually talking about that poo. We're talking about one of the most popular games on the Play Store. It's oh. poo, but it's pronounced P O U. Sorry, it's spelled ah. P O U, and it is basically this generation's Tamagotchi. And if you sign up for GameStash right now, you get to play Poo for as long as you want, and you get free in-app purchases for the entire time you sign up for GameStash. That's a fu- you, you spend $5 a month, and you get Poo and more. You get to Poo as much as you want for as long as you're signed up. And right now, if you go to gamestash.com slash acpod, you get 30 days of poo for free. Now, 
I know this might sound silly, but if you have kids, they probably know what this game is. It is basically crack for children, but legal and fun. <laughs> um, well, I, I have to admit, I knew what you were talking about because I have this game installed. Oh, you do? Okay, so you're yeah. um, you're familiar with the way that you can personalize yes, your poo? And, and can, mine always die because I don't take it. Well, they don't die. They actually just get really sick because I can't, I can't take care of them very well. <laughs> because you work. You, you, you have a job. But if your child has a smartphone or a PDA or something that runs Android, a tablet, God a forbid. PDA? I don't know. Whatever. I'm just what saying. This? Maybe they're- hey, maybe I got my, my three-column pilot, baby. <laughs> they're, they're using your old uh, Dell X51V running Windows Mobile 6. <laughs> that can emulate Android, can it? Um, so, Probably. If you have uh, a phone or something that your kid likes, download this game for them, see if they like it, and then when you sign up for GameStash, you don't have to worry about in-app purchases because they're all included. That and more, including adult games like Deus Ex, uh, tons of really great stuff coming in May and June. It's all available for free. If the game is premium, it's included in your, in your subscription. If it was a free-to-play game, all the in-app purchases or ads are removed. It's a really great experience, and you can get it by going to gamestash.com slash acpod and signing up for your free 30-day trial. Okay, last topic of the day. We're going to talk about Google I.O. It starts next Tuesday in Mountain View, California. Andrew, you've written a very extensive preview piece that went up today. Take us through what we're expecting at I.O. this year. Uh, Well, this this very much is... um speculation central because the the interesting thing about io is that so many of these things are not going to be they're going to be announced but not launched right away necessarily so google has been able to keep them all under wraps because they haven't had to do lots of wide testing or marketing anything like that uh they like to announce things like russell pointed out with um his io 2017 report card that just don't come out (laughs) or come out months and months in advance or months and months later. So Android P, we're going to learn a lot more about that. I think that's what a lot of people are showing up to watch for. Um, We're probably going to see the next developer preview. That's pretty much a lock, which is also going to be the beta program, which will be good. And there's usually a kind of a good shout that throughout the uh, different uh, we we kind of get looks at things that maybe we're not supposed to because they're just parts mm-hmm. of demonstrations or things like that. Android P is a great example of that. If they're showing off any new stuff, it's going to be on a developer preview. We may see some new interface things or color things or, or whatever about Android P. The same goes for Chrome OS and Chromebooks. I know Jerry will talk more about that. Um, we expect to hear plenty about Chrome OS and Chromebooks, but the way that those work, of course, is, you know, things are seamlessly updated. And so there isn't necessarily going to be a huge release where they say, and now it's completely different. But I think the the last big one for me is um, we should get something new on the Android TV front, which we talked about a few episodes back just being kind of a... Um, uh, a boat up a river without a paddle or some other bad analogy. <laughs> the, uh, where... the, the the clean version of that joke. <laughs> yeah. So 
that's something we're expecting. We're expecting some kind of a another refresh of Android TV, potentially more leaning towards Chromecast type functionality, but with a remote, maybe a new, this is one area where you may actually see a hardware announcement, um, but everything else should be software. Okay, so every year, as you said, they announce a whole bunch of stuff. A lot of it's moon, you know, um, like moonshot type announcements. Some of them don't actually get it uh, released. Uh, if you haven't seen, Russell made a really good video last week about what Google did and didn't end up launching from the things that it announced at I.O. 2017. Now, that's not to say that that'll happen again this year, but we know a few things. We know, as you said, Android P developer preview 2 or even the first public beta will be released for users to try on their pixel phones um we know that android tv is getting uh at least some sort of update we just got today some new features for wear os aka android wear which is kind of cool jerry what are you thinking we'll we'll see from the chrome side of things i i was looking through what they've announced for sessions and there's a big push to Fix your app so it works everywhere. And that push is coming from the Chrome side, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think anybody with a Chromebook now knows that Android apps run on Chrome. But a lot of them suck. It's the same thing we had with tablets. And Google can't fix that. They need to get developers excited to fix it. So I think that's going to be a big part of the focus. They're going to adjust small pieces of the UI to make it easier for your app to fit in. If you can like, let's say resize it or make it use all the real estate available to it. Uh, They're expanding assistant always on listening. So you can take all these new actions they're teaching you about and maybe put those in your app. And you you know, one day we're going to be able to build that into a web page. You can go to dominoes.com and order a pizza uh, baby steps on that kind of stuff, but they're really going to focus on Chromebooks are now your new big screen mobile device. Let's build the things that we want to put on them. So Assistant and Android apps are going to be better on Chrome. Um, we know that there's a new design coming to Chrome in, I think it's mm-hmm. 67 or 68. I don't know. What's on Canary 67, right I believe. 67. Um, I feel like there must be, we must be close mm-hmm. to seeing something relating to Fuchsia, right? Yeah. I, I want to believe. I, I really, the, 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 the wise part of me that doesn't just wildly speculate, very small part of me, but it's there. Google is going to wait until they can actually build their own interior components, their own SOC with a processor and, you know, something to interface with a radio and Bluetooth. When they get that done, then they can make so much better use of the microkernel they're using in Fuchsia. They could do it now. We've already seen you can install it on your Pixel book. But what's the purpose right now? I, I don't... If they want them to converge in a bigger way they can do that with what we have right now so i think there's something more that we're going to have to see first okay so andrew what else are we expecting from the event starting on tuesday 
Uh, well, I think that, uh, I mean, when you talk about cross-platform operations, uh, Google Assistant is going to be massive. And this new, not not that new, this um, this thing they're calling Actions, which is basically, basically how you interact with a third-party app service, whatever, through Google Assistant, no matter what you're talking to, uh, has a, it has a huge focus at I.O. There are at least a dozen sessions at I.O. about actions. And like you said, they just announced um, all actions are coming to Wear OS through uh, Google Assistant. We're going to see lots and lots and lots of talk about Google Assistant and most importantly, getting third-party developers up and running with Google Assistant actions so that it's not just Google pushing yep. uh, pushing the cart. It's got to be all of these other things. They made a big announcement today that Google Assistant supports um, 5,000 different smart home products. You know, you're going to see lots of big numbers like that and lots of teaching developers how to interact with Google Assistant because they're trying really, really hard to get Assistant to work the exact same on every single kind of device. That's well, hard, that, <laughs> but, but it's very important because uh, in, in some Western markets, about half the consumers are using an iPhone, and you can't have a very stark d- difference between how your app works for you and how your app works for your significant other or your mom. They, they need things to look and work the same everywhere. So you start with your, you clean up your own house first. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think the last you know, kind of part of that as well as we're going to see, uh, hopefully, well, you know, more just completely expectedly, uh, more on the smart displays with Google Assistant as well after kind of seeing them previewed at CES. We should get a better feel for <laughs> how they're actually going to work because at CES, everything that we saw was very um, theoretical and kind of a mock-up. And we know that these are running Android things, which is very interesting. And they're basically cast targets for themselves. So you're talking to Google Assistant and then anything that it does, it's casting to itself. Uh, So it's very modular and reliant on Google Assistant. And if Google is ready to show off what that interface looks like uh, for real, then that shows you that they're they're ready to expand way beyond just that. You know what we won't see? BF, What's that? BFGD displays from NVIDIA. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously Google I.O. is not just about announcements by Google, but it's about developers. Um, I think uh, Steve Ballmer is actually going to be up on stage on Tuesday, just like <laughs> running back and forth, shouting developers this year. Um, but it's all about giving developers the tools they need and not just that, the mentorship, the support they need to be a part of Google's ecosystem. And that ecosystem has expanded so much since the early days of IO and Android, right? We have, yes, Android and, and Chrome, but we now have Google Assistant. We have Google Cloud. We have Daydream. We have AR Core. We have all of these different parts of the Google ecosystem, but we also have products. We have products like YouTube, which is itself an enormous business. We have the Play Store, which is, as again, an enormous business. These are not just a part of 
Android or Chrome, right? They exist on their own. You can sign up for Google Play Music separately from being an Android user or a Chrome user. Um, I think these are important because Google is acknowledging that as important as Android and Chrome are, they're not necessarily the only ways to experience Google services. And you touched on something, uh, the, the, the support network for developers. Uh, that's something that Google already has. I mean, I, I know Andrew and Daniel, you'll agree the the developer advocate team and the, the people that run the departments at Google are some great people that will help you any way they can. We know this because that's the type of people we work with. But if you're developing an app, you need to know that, that that's available for you, that you can shoot out an email and you're going to get somebody that wants to help you. You just have to be able to find them and know that they exist. Um, and, and to that end, Google's offering office hours for almost all of its products for developers. Um, one thing that I'm looking forward to is talking to developers at IO on the ground to see what they're doing, some cool experiences uh, that they're putting in their apps and services. But last year, one of the coolest installations was Tango, Jerry. But obviously, yeah. Tango is no longer a thing. It's been replaced since by AR Core. I, I really think they shouldn't have used the word replaced. It's being supplanted by AR Core. And let's use the new name because it's newer. Uh, everything from Tango still exists in, in some developer's mind somewhere. And the great stuff isn't going to disappear. It just has to be reworked. And maybe that's for the better. But I was sad to see them say that Tango was gone. What else is I.O.? I mean, it's obviously a developer conference, but it's also sort of a party, I have to say. It's something that you know we look forward to, not just to Especially go and work and year. to see cool stuff, but to hang out with our buds from other, from other sites. And Google always throws a really good first night party. And this year, Andrew, it's a magic show. It kind of sounds kind of weird. Uh, I, hope yeah. it's I hope it's Doug Henning. I haven't seen him in a long time. I have to say, I'm not necessarily looking forward to that, but I'm up for it. Yeah, and you know, Google always puts on a spectacle. And, and some of the things you know, that I've read, which you know, are totally fair, um, should Google, like Facebook just did, be as self-congratulatory about its ecosystem right now, given that it's been under such heavy scrutiny in the last year about privacy problems, um, and about overreach, about fake news, about um, you know, many of the issues around YouTube and spreading extremist content on there. You know, Jerry, should they be addressing this at the keynote? No, not at the keynote. Uh, that's definitely something that they need to address, and, and they need to address it more aggressively than they have. They have rolled over on a lot of that stuff and just let the the internet rumor mill, you know, set the tone. Uh, other things they rightfully don't want to talk about. But at the keynote speech, no, this is this is first and foremost a developer conference. You talked about a magic show. I, I think the first three Google IOs, they had Billy Idol, Jane's Addiction, and LCD Sound System. That doesn't sound like a developer conference, but that's just a few hours of it. The rest of the time is people talking about how you build apps, how you use these services, how you make great things that other people want. And that's not the time nor the place to discuss, you know, extremist videos on YouTube. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that Google I.O., you know, 
come on, it's it's three days. For a lot of people, it's just one day or just a few hours of paying attention to it. But it, it really is. It's just three days. And I am completely okay with Google focusing on, you know, just explaining to everyone what its whole operation is across all of its different products and services and how people can interact with those. I have no problem with them focusing on all of the good stuff. I mean, this is happening right across the street from the Google campus. Hundreds and thousands of Googlers are involved in putting this thing on. I don't think that they need to take this massive stage figuratively or literally and, you know, kind of self, you know, roll out a bunch of self-pity about how they need to do better about this, that, and the other thing. I I don't think there necessarily needs to be an acknowledgement of that at the time. I I think that they could probably do with, you know, doing a little more of that, but maybe, you know, in its own separate uh, situation or statements or anything like that. That stage was Jerry Garcia's last great show. Don't put bad vibes into that stage. (laughs) I, I look, I, understand where you're coming from here but i disagree i think that google needs to spend five or ten minutes out of its two-hour keynote to really address the fact that it has contributed to bad things in the world and that it is doing everything it can to make that better i don't think it needs to fall on its sword and get all grovelly the way that zuckerberg did because i don't think (laughs) they need to but i do think that it is important for Sundar Pichai to acknowledge publicly in front of all of the developers that rely on Google for their living, many of many of whom rely on Google for their living, to ensure that they are contributing to a safe and productive ecosystem. Um, and given that Google is the biggest advertiser, digital advertiser in the world, that it has so much influence in the way that it um, makes people, you know, search and spend money. I would like to see something public to say that we are going to do better in 2019. And and that's just that's because I believe that Google is not an evil company, but it is so big and has so much reach that it can't help but fall over sometimes. And as we've seen from Facebook, there's a right way to fix things and there's a wrong way to fix things. Yeah, there there is a very fine line there between acknowledgement of potential struggles and the power that Google holds and, you know, getting out ahead of saying like, yes, we are thinking about these things and maybe giving off the vibe that they're pre-apologizing for things they have yet to screw up. And that's that's something that you you really don't want to cross that line in such a, a public fashion. You have to be very careful. If if Sundar agrees with uh, Daniel, and and he very well may, he's a very compassionate man. You have to be careful that you don't sound like you're putting your misdeeds at the same scale as some of the other misdeeds that other companies have made, because they're not. They're bad. Some of the things Google allows to happen are bad. Uh, like Daniel, I don't agree that they facilitate that. They just are so big that it slips through. But they don't enable bad people to do bad things and then encourage it like another company did. So you have to be careful not to put yourself on the same level or you'll be crucified. I 
think they've already been crucified by a lot of privacy advocates. Well, and, and deservedly so. I want privacy advocates to crucify Google, and I want Google to come back and prove them wrong, and then I want Google to be crucified again. That's the only way to keep them in check. But I don't think that they need to say we're as bad as Facebook. No, I, they would never do that, obviously not. Google. <laughs> but, but I'm saying they have to be careful because that, that, that's the impression a lot of people will get if they make a, a heartfelt apology. Yeah, agreed. No, I, I, I see where you're coming from, and, and I'm sure that either it will just be completely ignored or at least it will, um, the acknowledgement will be as, as positive or as, it'll oh, have yeah. as much spin as, as, as Sundar <laughs> can muster. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, you know, Andrew and I will be there. Uh, unfortunately, Jerry, uh, you won't be, but you'll be back at home watching everybody on the, on the stream. I'm sitting this one out. I had a rough year, and I need to sit this one out. All you old guys understand where I'm coming from, but I'll be back next year. Hey, everybody, I have a really great idea. Um, message Jerry on Twitter and tell him how much you appreciate him. Okay? I know I've never asked this before, but I want you to tell him how much you appreciate him because uh, I think we really appreciate you, Jerry. Well, I'm glad you all appreciate me, and, and thank you. I'm not sure that that's well-placed. There are a lot of other people that deserve your appreciation more than I do, but, man, if you, if you flood me on Twitter, okay, that's cool, that's funny. I, I probably won't be able to answer everybody, and that drives me insane, so I'm going to tell you in advance if I don't answer you, I'm sorry. And when you go there to send him that tweet, shut up, change Andrew. your Twitter, change your Twitter password first. Yes. And, oh God. And yes. then, and then, and then do that. Yeah. So anyway. this, this actually hit as we were, as we were podcasting, there has been a bug discovered in Twitter's password oh, storage. Yeah. No big deal. Just um, a bug that has stored the passwords in, um, in unencrypted plain text. Oh my good God. So change your Twitter pro, uh, password. They haven't been hacked or leaks or anything, but just out of an abundance of caution, change the password, sign up for a two, um, sign up for two-factor authentication and get a password manager so that you can have a really long random password that nobody can guess. And you should be changing your Twitter password every month anyway. I mean, by the time that you hear this podcast, obviously this will be well known to everybody, but it's just, just hitting right now. But that's the problem. It's like you... You have a long, like my password is just gobbledygook, like 30 I'm characters. I'm trying that right now. Gobbledygook. <laughs> and, <laughs> spell that. But it doesn't matter because if it's just on Twitter and it's, uh, you know, on Twitter's back end and it's in clear text, then it doesn't matter how random it is because it's just available. It might as well be ABC123. Well, and we don't uh. know all the details about this yet. I, I think, uh, who was it? That, that broke this news? Uh, was it Bloomberg? Reuters. 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 Uh, they, they allude that nobody's seen these outside of Twitter, Twitter yet. But that's, who knows yeah. if that'll be true or not. So be careful and do the right thing. The, the problem is that something like this, the news coming out, means that people start rooting around oh, a absolutely. lot more specifically. And they could find an old version of that. And, Abs- you know, of absolutely. the hundreds of millions of people, you know, unfortunately, not all of them listen to this podcast. And so some of them won't change their password. Right. And remember, Twitter's password databases are online somewhere, and some people know how to look for them. So here's so. a question. 
Should they be forcing people to change their passwords? Why is this voluntary? Yes. Yes, they should. Uh, who was but it? But they won't because they're afraid of monthly active user numbers going down. Well, all the bots will disappear and their numbers will be cut in half. Let's be honest. But what was it? Pinterest or uh, I don't know if it was Pinterest or LinkedIn. One of these other network type companies forced everybody to change their password because of a breach. And I thought that was the smartest thing ever. You went to sign in and you got a pop-up saying you had to change your password. It took two minutes out of your life and it kept you from being hacked. You know who else I appreciate? I appreciate Andrew Martinick. He's a smart mm-hmm. guy. He's coming with me to I.O. And he's also um, he's also a really, really, really big soccer fan. So mm. what I would love you all to do is to go to Twitter and to message him about how much you hate the Seattle Sounders. Just despise oh, I get, I, you know, them. Yeah. Because the Toronto FC is the only FC club that you should care about right now. And frankly, we're going to win this series again. Just saying. Just saying. It's... Uh... <laughs> oh, I love teasing you about that. Kick, um, well, kick me while I'm down. I, you know, right? I, I, there's legal cannabis in California now. And I picked this year not to go. <laughs> so, I mean, there's no legal cannabis in West Virginia? Well, for medical use, yeah. But, but I mean, it's legal, legal. So you all remember me. I think we'll be fine with some beer. Thank you very much. Oh, actually, we're playing... Oh, Andrew, so we are playing you next Wednesday when we're both in... Sam, when we're both in... Uh, oh, right. So we will have to find a bar... Get a couple beers and a watch couple. as the FC destroys the Sounders. I'll bring my Sounders jersey Andrew, just to make sure that it's legit. Teams from Toronto cheat. We learned that in Holy the, the ALCS. Cow. Excuse me? <laughs> they, teams from Toronto cheat. Just, just Andrew, prepare to lose because of cheating players and paid referees. Okay, I take everything I said about Jerry back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, I think we're going to end it there for today. Andrew, Jerry, thank you so much. You guys are the best. You are also the best for listening to this show. We will be live next week from Mountain View, California with a post-Google I.O. podcast, and we can't wait for you to join us then. Until then, have a good one. Adios. Bye-bye.